Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 100 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities. IberiaBank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers Comp and 30 North Investments. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. In New Orleans, we often take pains to point out what makes us different from other places. It's pretty common to hear comments like, we're not like the rest of the country, or we're not like the rest of the South. So it's ironic that two of New Orleans' newest icons are representative of the South and the rest of the country, and they're just blocks away from each other. I'm talking about the World War II Museum and the Ogden Museum of Southern Art. The World War II Museum was declared America's official national World War II Museum by an act of Congress. In 2014, Traveler's Choice named it as the 11th best museum in the world. And by 2017, its economic impact on the city is estimated to reach a billion dollars. By any standards, the World War II Museum is a big deal. The museum's vice president and chief operating officer is Stephen Watson. Stephen, welcome out to lunch. Thanks. Glad to be here. The, uh, now, locally, we refer to the Ogden Museum of Southern Art as the Ogden. Uh, the museum takes the abbreviation a step further, referring to itself in its marketing as the O. Uh, the museum holds the largest collection of Southern Art in the world and is a leading resource and authority on the culture of the South. The director of the Ogden Museum of Southern Art is William Andrews. Uh, William, welcome out to lunch. Greetings, Peter. Now, Stephen, in the late 1990s, the World War II Museum seemed to start off fairly modestly, selling personalized bricks on the sidewalk to raise money to build it. Today, the museum seems to be growing bigger every year, and there's a $300 million expansion plan underway. How big is the museum eventually going to be? And once you've sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into it, plus then you have to expand staff and other facilities to run it, does it remain economically viable? That's a great question. Well, um, we're, uh, we're about two-thirds of the way through the expansion at this point, so it's a $325 million campaign. We've raised about $250. We've built about $200 million. When it's all said and done, it'll be about 300,000 square feet, basically taken up two and a half city blocks. Um, there'll be a 200-room hotel, uh, 500 space parking garage. Um, we'll probably stabilize at about 350 staff, operating budget at about 40 million. So uh, it's a big venture. Um, the sustainability thing is something that uh, we've looked at for a long time. One of the things that came out of Katrina is we really doubled down on revenue programs and education programs that a lot of museums really weren't in 10 what years ago. What would be examples of those? Um, distance learning. Um, we were one of the first museums to invest in uh, Tamburg compressed video, a technology that takes you directly into classrooms all across the country. 
Um, we also really doubled down on our national membership program, which today is the largest of any museum in the country. Wow. About 135,000 active households, 90% of them outside of the region. And then also other things like uh, study abroad and international travel. I mean, we have a whole team now dedicated to taking people to battlefields all across the world. We have 27 trips either in development, uh, you know, actively being sold or being executed right now. So international travel, Normandy, Battle of the Bulge, Mediterranean, Pacific, Pearl Harbor, um, things that we could do while we were still getting back up on our feet in New Orleans and things that ultimately have strengthened the educational component of our programming and generated new and different sources of revenue that are now an important part of what makes up the overall operations of the museum. 2009, we were $10 million a year operating budget. This year, we'll be close to 40. Wow. And uh, every year, knock on wood, since we've opened, we've been able to stay in the black. And that's because we've just got a, a really great board, national board, and uh, a really great group of hardworking staff that I think are doing some of the most innovative things really uh, in the museum and nonprofit sector all across the country. Now, William, one of the most interesting marketing moves the Ogden has made in New Orleans is to position itself as more than just a place with paintings hanging on the walls. Uh, movies, parties, and other events attract people who might not normally be excited about Southern art. Notably among these community events is the Thursday night music series. Does the music attract a new audience that you can convert into art lovers, or do they mostly uh, just come, listen to the music, have a few drinks, and you take their money and never see them again? Does it help? Does it build up something? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, certainly a question of building a community. And what we recognize with the Ogden Museum that we've made different than other institutions is to recognize that people want to do things with people. And traditionally, you've thought of museums as a place where one went to look at something and learn something. But we like the concept of a more participatory museum where people come and do things with other people in that space. One of the things that's always interested me about museums, art museums in particular, is, is the atmosphere and the ambiance of people learning together. And as a place where um, art and people meet, it is very naturally creative. So uh, the Ogden After Hours program is one of those things, highly visible, it's uh, recurring and, and interestingly listed in a membership survey as the number one benefit that they enjoy using uh, to the museum. I guess I should know this, but in terms of the business side of a museum, do you own the paintings, or are they, uh, are they all the art is it loaned? What's the what's the business behind it? Well, almost categorically, uh, the the majority of the collection has been a gift to the institution. Uh, like mo most art museums, uh, certainly since the uh, Great Recession, I guess, and before, are are not in the habit of having large acquisition budgets. Uh, and also, there is a, a wonderful opportunity to connect and correlate with people who've made it their lives' personal mission to learn an, an in-depth um, history or even study or analysis about a particular region, a period, a style, uh, individual artist's work, perhaps even a media. And there comes a certain point, uh, typically in their lives, whether they've invested all of their uh, care into a few select objects or they've collected far and wide and have hundreds of things they decide they would like to share um, with a broader public over a longer uh, 
you know, a longer period of yeah. time. What about when you do make acquisitions or you have an exhibit coming through? Is it your call or does the board make that? And what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about will it attract enough folks? Uh, how do you make that decision? We think a lot about that, as a matter of fact, and that's why museums are frequently accused of having a glacial process when it comes to <laughs> identifying, selecting, and advancing exhibitions because we're not choosing for the staff or for the trustees or, or even for our membership audience. We have to think about the history of the institution, its pertinence to the collection, what else is going to be on view, what is happening in the city, what is happening in the American South as far as larger conversations are going, how that relates to the rest of the, the nation. And in a city like New Orleans, uh, we see a lot of international visitors. So even though, as I say, we're a, a regional museum with a national mission and an international audience, we have a process that involves a lot of conversations with a lot of people. And uh, that's really part of the joy. Uh, it's, it's not easy because you have a finite amount of space and time. Uh, unlike the uh, National World War II Museum, we have about 75,000 square feet. Some of that is, is multidisciplinary, uh, performative er areas. Uh, and uh, so we have changing galleries, uh, typically on a, a cyclical basis of four times a year. The museum, in some very ambitious times, has shown as many as 25 exhibitions in a year, which is not as sustainable as uh, <laughs> what the, the more the more uh, agreeable approach now is that we see around nine or ten in a year, and that includes a lot of our education initiatives as well. Um, it, the process involves uh, a curatorial committee and then a full museum committee and a quarterly meeting and then a panel of the board, so we get a lot of input. So if somebody comes up with a really good fundraising idea, it's not in, not in your, region, your region, you could you know take that idea and give it a try, huh? Yeah, and actually... Where we've really gotten a lot of our inspiration from, and you know, as a national museum with the ability to raise money outside of the city, um, we've really actually looked at the causes. We've looked at the American Heart Association, the animal rights folks, the political fundraising folks. You know, a lot of those organizations they they don't have a, a temple or a physical presence, so they come to their mission from the perspective of a cause, and how do we get lots of people engaged in supporting that? And we've really taken some of the things that we've seen from the work that they've done and applied them to our museum. So one example is um, we have a membership program. The vast majority of those people are not in the region, so they're not becoming members for a lot of the privileges that a local member would. They're becoming a member because they believe in your mission, they may have a, a family connection to the war, so... We actually give our membership cards out whether or not you renew your membership. We take a very different approach that's not traditional in a museum yeah. setting, but it's an effective way for us to raise money nationally, and it's really uh, allowed us to think very differently about what a membership uh, to a museum means. I challenge our staff all the time to, to look in the for-profit sector, to look in other sectors of the nonprofit world, and, you know, there's really a lot of amazing things happened. When I think over the 13 years that I've been at the museum, and I'm sure this is the, the same with uh, William, the typical skills that we would have looked for in a museum are still relevant. Curators, historians, conservationists, those are all things that will never go away. But when I look at our staff and I look at the skills that we have now, digital media specialists, videographers, copywriters, um, web designers, graphic yeah, designers, you know, the 
the skill uh, network administrators, you know, programmers, all the things that uh, any business would have that have become a much more important piece of what we do and give us the ability to think about our mission. You know, William talked about the community events and, and people interacting with people. You know, we have, a, I think, a higher expectation from our public now that it's not just about a core visit to the museum. It is about those programs. It is about those community events that you do. It is about your digital presence. It's about your K through 12 education programs that you're bringing into the classroom. So all of those things are great. Um, you have to raise money and support them all. Um, but they allow you to engage with your audiences and do things that 10, 15 years ago we weren't really talking about in museums. So to me, that's one of the most exciting things that um, the next 10 years will, will have for us. It's the time uh, in the show we do the checklist. Uh, we ask, uh, we take a little bit of a break and ask you a question that you probably wouldn't find on a loan application. I'm going to start with, with William. Uh, William, what is the best career advice you've ever been given? I've been given a lot of career advice. <laughs> Most of it was antithetical to the choices that I made. But um, <laughs> a good family friend gave me at the beginning of my career and I was struggling to think about a, de a decision in between academics, which I'd been involved in with over 15 years as a, as a, a studio professor and an art historian, and then embarking on the management of a large nonprofit organization, such as museums, and say, you know, uh, change is not always easy, um, but it is always going to be there. So you have a decision to make up every day when you wake up in the morning. Do you want to watch? Or do you want to play in the game? <laughs> and it was really a very succinct and fun piece of advice. It kind of uh, takes some of the, you know, gravity sometimes out of the daily situations that you're in when you're dealing with large organizations and a, and a very important mission. And I always like to wake up and think, well, I'm going to enjoy playing the game today. And Stephen, uh, I'll ask you a different question. When you were a child, how are we, are we taught in Scotland? Uh, they, uh, were you in any leadership or entrepreneurial ventures? Well, I, I grew up on a farm, and one thing about growing up on a farm in Scotland is as soon as you can walk, you start working. Uh, my cousin and I, who were, he was two years older than me, we were like brothers growing up. We, uh, we had a local sheep farmer that was one farm over from us, and every spring, spring when the, the lambs were born, a ewe, a mother sheep, could only support two lambs with milk. Well, he had a thousand ewes, and every now and again, they'll have three lambs. So what do you do with that third lamb? Often, they would just kill one of the lambs. So we were entrepreneurial, and we said, give them to us, and we will bottle feed these lambs and bring them through to the point where they can eat grass, and we will sell them at the market. So uh, when I was 12, we had uh, my cousin and I woke up every morning at 5 and bottle fed 30 lambs for six months until they were old enough to put into grazing, and then the following year we sold them, and that was my first sort of entre entrepreneurial experience. Do you have an operation like that now in the New Orleans area? Or yes, actually, that? yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll talk to you about it later. <laughs> We're looking for investors. So. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. They, uh, let's see. Now let's check our inbox. Our producer picks a question that's come in from a listener over the past week. Uh, Grant, what have you got? Peter, we have one question for each of our guests today. Um, this one came in for you, William. Uh, Andrea Avery Barnes asks you, how do you sell Southern art to tourists from up north? What I like to tell people is everyone wants to be Southerner, at least for a day. <laughs> so we open the doors and welcome them right in. And 
they're some of our greatest admirers. Stephen, this question came to you from Michael Gretsch, who asks, as generations get further away from World War II, you would expect interest in it to diminish. How do you promote the museum to new generations? It's a great question. And I think there's, there's two parts to it. And uh, one of the things that we have seen with our uh, visitation and support generally over the last 10 years is uh, actually we use the University of New Orleans does vinter, visitor intercept research for us. They also do a lot of work for the city and tourism. Um, people are always surprised to hear that a visitor profile at the museum actually skews a little bit younger than a New Orleans tourist. So on the visitation side, we have a very young, a very diverse audience, and uh, we've placed a high degree of importance on creating uh, really innovative, interactive experiences. If you've been lately and seen Beyond All Boundaries, or our new dog tag experience, which sort of marries technology with the ability to have a personal connection to a real person that lived through the war. So, you know, we're sort of finding in the belief that if you, we have a big mission, a great story to tell. There's great examples, Gettysburg, World War I, where there's great historical events that people are still very interested in. But at the core, we sort of believe that if we do this to the best of our ability, be the best museum that we can, do it in an innovative and compelling way, people will come and they will be interested. And I think that's one of the things that we're most proud of over the last five or six years in particular, as a lot of the new pavilions have come online, is that the, broader, the appeal of the museum has broadened. The demographics of the visitor have changed. The challenge that I think we face in really all museums and all nonprofits is our donor base. Um, you know, the philanthropic side of nonprofits has got a lot of work to do. We have older donors. We haven't really figured out how to engage in significant numbers. Uh, younger folks in terms of philanthropy. And that's the bigger challenge I think we face, but that's not unique to the World War II Museum. I think that's a, a museum and nonprofit sector challenge that we have to address as we go forward. Is it just that you get, tend to give more money when you get past a certain stage, or is it something about the baby boomers and the millennials? Or? Well, there's, a, there's an age part to it. There's also a mechanical part to it. You know, direct <laughs> mail for the 75 largest nonprofits in this country is still the number one source of fundraising. Um, it's a channel that's diminished 12 years in a row, and no one has really replaced that with any one thing. You know, we all thought email was going to be the next thing, and then everyone talks about social media, and those are very important tools that have roles, and those will continue to change. But there isn't that, it, part of it's related to the age and you know, affluence, but part of it I think is that media has changed, communication has changed, and us all finding our place in there where we can build sustainable ways to raise money and engage our, our constituents is, is something that uh, I think the nonprofit sector's got a lot of work to do in. There's a, a bit of a, a difference in cultural expectations too when you look across that broad span and it has to do with I think a bit of you know, c collective memory. So you have one generation that's used to these activities that we traditionally offer. You have another generation that wants to get a majority of their content on their phone or their iPad. Yeah. And even if, if they are going to support it with money, it, it it's, needs to be edible in 99 cent increments. Yeah. It, it's very, it's vastly right. different. And what Stephen said about, it's not just about looking for supporters, it's about continuing a meaningful dialogue and having some engagement that is significantly 
uh, entwined with the mission. And we, we do scratch our heads a bit thinking about that. Luckily, you know, uh, at the Ogden Museum, we have staff that can show me every day how to use Instagram and Twitter and whatever <laughs> else I need to see. And, um, and then some that really have a much better idea of, of where this should go for our involvement and what to do with it. And William, your background is, was like studio art and mm -hmm. such a, mm -hmm. but you seem to have embraced this other part that you needed, uh, the business side. Some people, you know, kind of <clears throat> reject it. You don't feel, it doesn't feel that way. You know, you, you're not always gifted with the talents that you want to have. <laughs> so <laughs> I always wanted to be a painter and I love painting and I love, I, I love the pirate, world of art. Yeah, it, was, uh, yeah I, it doesn't always work out. That would have, it would have been my second choice, would have been pirate. <laughs> um, and so, I have a you know an interest in organizational development and uh, keen on it enough to follow that and uh, I you know I like I think Stephen would agree if you care about the mission you love seeing it put into an orderly fashion and uh, a sustainable construct or mechanism that you can share with people. Yeah. William Andrews, Stephen Watson, the World War II Museum and the Ogden are both emerging icons of 21st century New Orleans. Now, we're probably never going to totally live down being the home of Mardi Gras and Bourbon Street, but the cultural and economic contributions of your museums are significant and growing. It's been great to learn a little bit about what it takes to run these institutions. Thank you both for taking the time and joining me on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Peter. You bet. A lot of fun. Thank Learn, you. Learned a lot. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been William Andrews, Director of the Ogden Museum of Southern Art, and Stephen Watson, the Vice President and Chief Operations Officer of the World War II Museum. Now, you can find out more about the Ogden and the World War II Museum by following the links on our websites, www.no.org and itsneworleans.com. The show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday, and live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Internet driller Jennifer Brady is our researcher. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can get the show as a podcast. You can listen to past shows. And you can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites. It's neworleans.com and wwno.org. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and wwno89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities, iberiabank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers' Comp and 30 North Investments.